Is there a realistic prospect of election rigging in the 2018 midterm elections? What lessons were learned from the 2016 elections that could help preserve the integrity of the November 6th vote? Are there any substantive changes in the renegotiated NAFTA agreement, or was it merely a cynical campaign ploy in the run-up to the midterms? What does the USMCA agreement have to do with China? Will the Democrats take the House on November 6th? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio show, we take an early look at the upcoming midterm elections and examine the factors that will likely influence the outcome. First, we hear from Bob Fitrakis, lawyer, author, and election integrity expert, about the possibility of foul play in the November 6th vote. In our second half hour, we hear from political economist, writer, and commentator Jack Rasmus about what's in the newly renegotiated NAFTA agreement and how that legislation may play out in the congressional elections. On this week's program, Breaking the Blue Wave, Rigged U.S. Elections and the New NAFTA. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 2nd, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe, Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nihiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. This year's Asian Parliamentary Assembly, or APA, just took place in the southwestern Pakistani port city of Gwadar, the terminal point of the Silk Road's flagship project of CPEC, as well as its mainland maritime pivot, which importantly allowed Islamabad to show off the progress that's been made thus far on this game-changing initiative. Around 100 parliamentarians from 26 countries such as Russia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia arrived to participate in the event, which was the first high-profile multilateral one of this level to take place there. The author suggested back in spring 2017 during a speech at Pakistan's National Defense University that the country prioritizing hosting large-scale events in this growing connectivity nexus in order to promote CPEC proposing at the time that a brand new function one day be unveiled provisionally called the Gwadar Gathering for bringing together a wide array of academic, political, military, business, and civil society figures. The two-day APA meeting can therefore be seen as an organizational and logistical precursor for preparing Gwadar to host even larger functions in the future, such as the unique one that the author suggested. It's also relevant in and of itself not only for the work that the organization carried out during this time, but because of the soft power goals that Pakistan advanced as well. That comes from the article, The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC. The Asian Parliamentary Assembly meeting in Gwadar was good news for CPEC by Andrew Koribko, posted October 31st, originally appearing at Eurasia Future. 
Through its mapping and labeling, the Hamle report explains, quote, One can deduce that Google Maps recognizes the existence of Israel, with Jerusalem as its capital, but not Palestine, unquote. There are further aspects of the way Google has wiped Palestinian life off the map, though. As the Hamle report maps in some detail, Palestinian villages in the Nakab, in the Negev Desert, deemed unrecognized by Israel, inside of what is sometimes termed Israel proper, the territories of Palestine occupied in 1948, are not properly mapped by Google. These villages are only visible in Google Maps when zooming in very closely, the report explains, but otherwise appear to be non-existent. This means that when looking at Google Maps, these villages appear to be not there. That comes from the article, How Google Wipes Palestine Off the Map, by Asa Winstanley. Posted October 31st, originally appearing at Middle East Monitor. Bowers was evidently motivated by a combination of rabid anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant chauvinism. He posted comments on social media just prior to the attack linking his hatred of Jews to the efforts of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, or HIAS, with which the Tree of Life Synagogue is affiliated to assist refugees fleeing Central America. Quote, HIAS likes to bring invaders in that kill our people, he wrote. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. The language he employed, including the use of invaders to refer to migrants fleeing poverty and violence in Central America caused by U.S. imperialism, is that of the Trump administration. That comes from the article, Mass Shooting at Pittsburgh Synagogue, Anti-Semitic Violence Erupts in America, by Joseph Kishore, posted October 31st, originally appearing at World Socialist website. Thus, at the table with Italy and Russia was seated the stone guest, the privileged ally closely followed by Italy. So nothing was said about the fact that on the 25th of October, the day after Prime Minister Conti in Moscow had qualified the state of bilateral relations between Italy and Russia as excellent, Italian armed forces began the war game Trident Justice 2018 with other NATO forces under U.S. command and directed against Russia. This is an exercise in which the U.S. and NATO bases in Italy play a major part. There was no mention either of the fact that on the 25th of October, the day after Prime Minister Conti in Moscow had qualified Russia as a strategic partner, his government in Brussels participated in the North Atlantic Council, which, on the basis of information supplied by the USA, unanimously accused Russia of violating the INF Treaty with behavior destabilizing for our security. The Conti government thus supported de facto the U.S. plan to abandon the INF Treaty and once again to deploy in Europe, including Italy, medium-range nuclear missiles pointed at Russia. That was from an article under the headline, Video, The Stone Guest at the Table with Italy and Russia by Manlio Dinucci, posted October 31st, originally published in Italian on Il Manifesto. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
Americans are back at the polls on Tuesday, November 6th for the all-important election of candidates for the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, as well as elections of governors at the state level. These elections take place at the midpoint of an elected president's term in office. The midterm elections are typically seen as a referendum on a sitting president's performance in office. According to Wikipedia, over the course of the past 21 midterm elections, the party of the president has lost an average of 30 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. Author Philip Giraldi notes in his article for Strategic Culture Foundation that the 2018 midterm elections are being hailed as perhaps the most important national election since those of 1968, which elected Richard Milhouse Nixon to power, and of 1980, which resulted in Ronald Reagan replacing one-term incumbent Jimmy Carter. Some of the issues potentially impacting voter choices include the partisan dust-up over Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, job opportunities in the wake of President Trump's protectionist policies, and the treatment of migrants to the United States, including the several thousand children, parents, elderly, and other adults from Central American countries now headed for the U.S.-Mexico border wall. Of course, Trump himself has proven to be one of the most controversial and polarizing presidents in recent American history, with his unstatesmanlike tweets and his relaying of demonstrably false facts as truth. Democrats, unwilling to confront their own failures to connect with the electorate, have accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of interfering with the U.S. elections. The campaign has been punctuated with a number of violent incidents, including pipe bombs being sent exclusively to prominent Democrats, including former DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, California Representative Maxine Waters, Hillary Clinton, and former President Barack Obama. There's also the recent mass shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue, which claimed the lives of 11 people. Many have commented on how the perpetrator, like many white nationalists, have been emboldened by Trump's public statements. In total, Trump backers and detractors alike may be motivated to head for the polls in higher-than-average numbers to sound off on the issues gripping America in 2018. The political news and polling data aggregator Real Clear Politics is predicting that based on current trends, the Democrats will retake the House of Representatives, winning 203 seats to the Republicans' 196. It should be noted, however, that the same firm predicted a Hillary Clinton win in the 2016 presidential elections. As the Global Research News Hour previously documented at the time, we know that partisan players do have the ability to distort voter intentions by both denying the vote to key constituencies and by tampering with voting machines through the use of backdoor channels. Bob Fitrakis is one of the election integrity experts who has researched these methods of vote tampering. He's an American lawyer, political author, and writer a political candidate and professor of political science in the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department at Columbus State Community College. He's been the editor of the Columbus Free Press since 1993 and has written extensively about the U.S. presidential election of 2004 and uh, the related 2004 U.S. election voting controversies. He detailed his observations about the 2016 general election two years ago and joins us again with his concerns about the upcoming midterms. Thank you for joining us, Bob Vitrakis. Oh, glad to be on. Maybe you could once again bring our listeners up to speed about what you mean by the stripping and flipping of the vote that you exposed in past elections. Well, the uh, stripping really is the uh, purging or deleting of names of voters from the voting rolls which and the uh, 
flip is, of course, once you uh, strip enough voters, it's fairly easy uh, to program a computer uh, to get the results uh, that you want, particularly when uh, the United States votes on, uh, on machines with software programmed often by partisan for-profit corporate entities who are protected by laws uh, that their uh, programming is uh, proprietary. It's secret. Okay. Um, and is it not true that Republicans are typically the beneficiaries of these mechanisms? Well, the Republicans historically, uh, you know, and a lot of this uh, emerged uh, really around the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, and a lot of the, these techniques were really used in the third world, were done covertly, so-called benign operations, uh, where instead of bloody coups, you just rigged, uh, you know, local elections, as you did in the late 40s in Italy or and, you know, they tried to do with the mainframe for, uh, uh, for Marcos in, in the Philippines or over Aquino. So there's been a long history of this, and the Republicans have overwhelmingly uh, been the beneficiaries. Uh, it seems like the companies uh, tend to lean that way uh, politically. Uh, and uh, some of them have gone out of business, Depot, and uh, Walden O'Dell notoriously promised to deliver Ohio's electoral votes in 2004, and uh, he had been uh, a support member of the Bush, George W. Bush re-election team. Hmm. Uh, election polls going into the current midterms have been registering anywhere from 3 to 11 percentage point leads for the Democrats. Factoring mm -hmm. in Factoring in the rigging, rigging methods that you've mentioned, how would you be inclined to adjust those figures? Well, I, I think I used to think it was in the five to six vote range, uh, but uh, you know, there's been uh, numerous examples. Uh, Max Cleland down in Georgia, where you know they've shifted double digits, and the thing to remember is that if you shift five points from one candidate to the other. Uh, that's a 10-point shift. So I think their comfort margin, you know, is uh, is about uh, 10 points. But, uh, you know, I, I've seen races where it's gone as high as 13. Hmm. Uh, have you seen any early signs that the fix may be in for the Republicans uh, this time around? Well, it's uh, widely reported, uh, including mainstream newspapers like the Houston Chronicle, uh, and numerous other uh, newspapers, and it was admitted by election officials in Texas that there was clearly a problem with the programming in uh, Texas. People that were trying to vote a straight-party Democratic ticket uh, were able to do that, all except uh, the Senate race, uh, where uh, Cruz would show up, uh, the Republican candidate, Ted Cruz would show up as a Democrat uh, on a straight party vote. Uh, so numerous uh, reports of that documented and accepted. Hmm. Are there uh, any other key races that uh, you're watching currently? Well, I'm uh, here in central Ohio. I'm watching the uh, 12th district race that was incredibly close. Uh, and, uh, 
the question of stripping voters there, one of the targets they use are college students. And there's been, uh, you know, thousands of new students in the 12th district at Ohio State University who have been fined up. But the problem in many cases there is you show up to vote and uh, there's no record uh, or they claim you have to vote provisionally uh, and often those ballots uh, aren't counted usually from some minor reason. You know, you signed on the outside envelope below the line. Uh, you used a initial on the ballot but didn't put an initial on the outside envelope. You left off a zip code on either on the outside or the uh, inside. So there's a real long history of uh, voter suppression uh, of college students in Ohio. Mm. I know another constituency that's typically been disenfranchised have been uh, the uh, you know black and, and minority uh, uh, voters who, who typically vote Democrat. Uh, any specific uh, areas that you've noticed where uh, that uh, situation has uh, gotten worse, perhaps? Well, uh, the uh, Democratic Party actually caught a break at the Sixth Circuit Court. The uh, Secretary of State... Uh, which, uh, not surprisingly, he's running as Lieutenant Governor John Houston in Ohio, uh, won a case at the Supreme Court uh, where he argued he could remove voters after not voting in two federal elections, uh, which, as you know, in one year you can have two federal elections, as we have in the 12th District. There's a, uh, you know, the primary election, and then there was a special election, Although, even though these people had voted last year in a local election, uh, he sends them uh, a mailing that looks like junk mail, and if they don't respond, uh, he could remove them from the voting rolls. And the Supreme Court of the United States, by a 5-4 to four vote, uh, allowed that. But uh, the Sixth Circuit, uh, just within the past few days, uh, a three-judge panel voted 2-1, to one that they weren't properly notified that, you know, sending stuff that looks like uh, designed like junk mail uh, with a card buried in a variety of papers uh, was not sufficient uh, notice. So they just reinstated, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, voters since 2011 that were illegally purged. And here's the thing people ought to think about. I mean, Ohio and most states are ID states. Why would you remove anyone from the voting roll unless, you know, they had died or moved out of state? Why would you remove anyone in a state that requires you to show ID proving you live at that address? It's never really made any sense to strip basic fundamental rights, uh, particularly from the poor minority and particularly the black community that has been uh, massively, massively targeted uh, in Ohio since the 2000 election. Well, what is the official justification? Is there one? Uh, well, they're arguing uh, that, uh, you know, they have to keep the polls uh, up to date. Uh, that used to be a, a mandate of two election cycles, that being an eight-year period. Then they uh, switched it down to a six-year period, then they switched it down to two elections and, you know, uh, ineffective, uh, as the court held in the Sixth Circuit, 
notification. So uh, they've never really been able to explain it other than they can get away with it at the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, which you know has shifted uh, in a very partisan direction to anything the Republican Party wants since the 2000 Bush v. Gore decision. Why has the Russiagate meme come to dominate current political discourse around election tampering and not uh, the more substantial methods that you and other election integrity researchers have documented? Well, I, I think you know when you're looking for a new Cold War, and there was some evidence that the Russians, you know, went into some voter registration areas, and no real evidence that they flipped any elections. Uh, I think it's easier, you know, to worry about some outside power as opposed to deal with the fundamental problem of non-transparency. And the fact that you've got private contractors literally with the keys to the kingdom, uh, people that are secretly, uh, you know, programming computers often here in Franklin County use 2.3 million li- uh, lines of code when most programmers, you know, said you could use open source code and, and need about 1,500 lines to simply count prime plus one. Right? I mean, a lot of these programs uh, subtract votes. Uh, and uh, increasingly, you know, we found that many of them, ES&S machines, for example, uh, that have uh, cellular hookups, so you can actually dial in to, you know, quote, fix problems. But that also allows you to fix the election. So I, I think it's just easier uh, to kind of approach the problem by blaming it on an outside uh, foreign nation as opposed to admit that we've had a uh, non-democratic, non-transparent system uh, since, you know, at least 2000. And that election in Florida in 2000, where they subtracted 4,000 votes for uh, Gore and uh, ES&S added 16,000 for Bush, that 20,000 vote swing was the only reason that election was called by Fox News, which, by the way, used John Ellis, the first cousin of George W. Bush on a 30-day contract, uh, to claim uh, that Bush had won when it was really based on a, you know, a supposed computer glitch. Mm. There has been considerable attention to the integrity of elections since the 2016 uh, elections, certainly. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on uh, some significant innovations since then, which... Uh, uh, have either alleviated or, or possibly made things worse to, in terms of disenfranchising the electorate? Well, you, you've got the Supreme Court decision that uh, you know makes it much easier to purge voters. And again, the voters being purged are overwhelmingly minority, disproportionately minority uh, voters in the poor, the core base of the Democratic Party. But uh, you've also have uh, certain people, uh, uh, again, uh, the one that surprised me was uh, a former CIA director, James Woolsey, who co-wrote an editorial in the New York Times, essentially saying we need to go to open source and there needs to be a ballot in every machine. There's also been a push uh, uh, towards uh, the use of digital scanners, uh, which have 
uh, really developed out of kind of German banking technology uh, where you uh, scan every ballot, you have a ballot image, and you have audit logs. Uh, so you can actually uh, check and make sure that the ballots match what the uh, computer uh, digitized machine is counting. Now, the problem there we've had in uh, Ohio, and I've brought two lawsuits on it, is that uh, in Ohio they've won the right to turn their security features off. So you buy the state-of-the-art equipment. Fourteen counties have it, these ES&S 850s, you know, these county uh, central tabulators. So you think, well, this will be a little more transparent, and then they decide they're going to turn that feature off and use it for write-in votes. So the machines were designed uh, to be you know, more uh, friendly uh, if there's any adjudication or any questions, and then essentially uh, you turn them off. It's like buying a house and buying a state-of-the-art security system and then making sure it's turned off. Um, Bob Fitrakis, how responsibly has the media in the U.S. reported on the observations that you uh, have uh, documented? Well, it's uh, good to report that uh, 14 years after the fact, the New York Times actually did a New York Times magazine a cover story, and they actually, uh, for them, crossed the Rubicon and uh, reported on stuff that was public fact in lawsuits. Uh, reported by the alternative media since 2004. They actually reported that the machines were indeed flipping in uh, uh, Mahoning County, uh, where the city of Youngstown is. Uh, and uh, really, they had never touched that story uh, when uh, it was well-known and well-documented, not even denied by the election officials. So 14 years after the fact, we now know uh, that the votes were flipping uh, from uh, John Kerry to George W. Bush. And often when they do report it, though, uh, some of the media that reported mainstream will say something like, well, there's calibration problems. Yeah. They're not saying you know, the votes are flipping. Your vote's going to the wrong person. They'll say, well, there's some problem with the uh, computer voting machine configuration. That means the votes are going to the wrong person. So they have a tendency, even when they cover it, uh, you know, to not go into any uh, great uh, detail and challenge the legitimacy of a system uh, that does not meet basic uh, criteria uh, for democracy. And uh, finally, uh, Bob, I, could you uh, maybe let our, our listeners know uh, how you anticipate that uh, Democrats and the media at large are likely to respond if we see the same disparity between the polls and the actual election results that we saw in 2016? Well, I I've really have no faith that the candidates are willing to challenge when it appears uh, uh, to be open uh, theft. Uh, remember in the 2016 campaign, had, uh, had the results come in, you know, 13 states showed improbable results when compared uh, to the exit polls, which would have been a red flag for the uh, United States State Department had it been a nation state. Uh, 
had these elections occurred outside the United States, our State Department and USAID would not have verified them because the results were too improbable. And uh, 12 of those states uh, went to uh, Donald Trump. You know, there were three or more standard deviations uh, outside the predicted results, meaning that in 99 cases out of 100, we could say with 95% certainty, those weren't the correct uh, results. And many of them were well beyond the 99 out of 100. You know, there were one in a thousand, one in fifteen thousand. Uh, but the Democratic candidates uh, uh, have, have have been taught uh, or coached not to really challenge those results. They don't want to be perceived as uh, uh, sore uh, losers. But uh, you know, I, I think voters should take uh, you know yellow tape to the poll and uh, you know police tape and uh, uh, or some yellow uh, ribbons and whenever a machine flips in front of you, you should, you know, put out police tape and demand that they come in and, uh, you know, examine the machine and take it out of uh, circulation. Uh, I'd love to see that. If you get a chance, you maybe can snap some <laughs> pictures for us and, and send them our way. Yeah, uh, it should be treated like the crime zone that it is. <laughs> Bob Petrakis, I, I wish to thank you for your time and, and for sharing your perspectives with our listening audience. All right. I appreciate it. We've been speaking with Bob Fetrakis, lawyer, author, and editor of the Columbus Free Press. He joined us from Columbus, Ohio. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. It's widely believed that one of the big issues in the 2016 election and a critical determinant for Trump was the promise to scrap NAFTA. Well, NAFTA has theoretically been replaced with something called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. The leaders of all three NAFTA countries have claimed the new agreement is an improvement over the previous nearly 25-year-old free trade agreement. The reported removal of investor-state dispute settlement mechanisms and the insistence on increased North American content in autos traded under the deal are hailed as gains. But do these benefits constitute smoke and mirrors? And what about the negative aspects of the deal? Could labor and the environment be worse off? Joining us to discuss the fine print of the deal is Jack Rasmus. He teaches economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. He hosts the show alternative visions on the progressive radio network he blogs at jackrasmus.com and is the author of a number of articles and books including central bankers at the end of their ropes monetary policy in the coming depression and the forthcoming the scourge of neoliberalism u.s policy from reagan to trump the global research news hour first asked dr rasmus to provide our audience with his overall take on the u.s mca well, the main thing your audience should know is that um, th this is a token change. Um, and I've been arguing since last March when uh, Trump uh, initiated his trade offensive uh, with tariffs on steel and aluminum that uh, this is a phony trade war, uh, at least with uh, U.S. allies. It's not a phony trade war with China. China is the real target, but all the rest of this is really about uh, November politics in the U.S. It's about um, economic nationalist appeals and America first uh, uh, politics uh, and Trump attempting uh, 
to to ensure that the November midterm U.S. elections, uh, he retains control of, of Congress, particularly the U.S. House. Uh, it's very important for him to do so, and he's been he's been politicking, uh, giving speeches non non end. And uh, you know, in 2016, this economic nationalism uh, worked for him, and uh, he's resurrected it again, or never never gave it up. And uh, he's using this theme and uh, trade. The trade negotiations uh, are really a part of all this uh, politicking. November election. You know, he said he's going to tear up NAFTA, right? <laughs> well, you know, he crossed out the name and he, he scribbled in a few uh, changes and additions. That's really what what we got here when you look at it. Um, and uh, South Korea was, was the template earlier this year. Uh, of uh, a softball deal with South Korea. South Korea is one of the biggest, uh, I think, the second or third largest steel importer to the U.S., and they totally got off the hook. And what we got out of South Korea was some token quotas on uh, on autos uh, and not on trucks, you see. Uh, uh, South Korea and U.S. can, can uh, you know, sell trucks. Uh, and, and all the growth in autos in the U.S. Uh, are really in trucks, you see. Uh, small trucks, light trucks, and the auto ind industry itself is now um, um, re in retreat, slowing down. So even the quotas uh, on autos, no quotas on trucks, uh, are, are just uh, on paper. And uh, that's going to be the case with the ca Canada-Mexico-U.S. deal as, as well. One of the provisions in the Canada-U.S. deal is that uh, Canada cannot import uh, more than 2.6 million cars to the U.S. It, it imports 2 million now. Uh, so that's a pretty big uh, cushion there, 2.6 million, particularly when uh, the auto industry sales are, are beginning to uh, weaken uh, in all of North America and everywhere. Uh, and there's no quotas on trucks. You know, so it's, uh, it's on paper. It's, it's a token deal. Uh, and, of course, we still have the aluminum and steel tariffs, they, they're not resolved yet, but they will be. They don't go into effect till October 25th, and Trump has said, we'll, we'll resolve those, uh, you know, sometime in November at, at the latest. Uh, so it, it, the deal is not really closed. You know, there are a lot of open uh, ends to it. The, a number of, of uh, sections in, in the Canada-U.S. deal uh, have not been resolved. So is there a deal? Why did they announce there was a deal? Uh, well, again, because he needs, he, Trump, needs something before the November elections. And also it makes Trudeau look good that, uh, you know, he forced the U.S. to an agreement and he'll emphasize the areas that he wants to emphasize. And in Mexico, they're rushing to get it. They were rushing to get a deal before AMLO, the new president, comes in. Uh, so politics all around uh, are, are playing a bigger role, I think in this deal than, than truly economics. And we can look at uh, in more detail uh, about the deal uh, with Canada and Mexico. Uh, but if, when you look at it, it's a pretty softball deal uh, in a number of areas. It certainly isn't tearing everything up. And of course, American business side with relief <laughs> that isn't tearing yeah. this thing up because there's a lot uh, at stake for them as well as uh, business. In, uh, Canada and, and Mexico. And then, of course, so when you talk about business in Canada, business in Mexico, a lot of this is American companies, right? It's not really Mexican companies, yeah. it's American companies. Uh, so, uh, I mean, like uh, one of the provisions in the Canada-Mexico deal is uh, intellectual property, right? Well, what do they mean by that? Well, 
a lot of what they mean by intellectual property is big pharma. Uh, the U.S. wants to be able uh, to force Canada and Mexico pharmaceutical companies, which are largely American companies located there, uh, to charge uh, uh, high comparable prices in Canada and Mexico, just as they do in the U.S. Well, then the price gouge. Uh, and that, that, that was part of the deal as well. Uh, the dispute mechanism uh, remains in place, except for one small provision there that uh, businesses can't sue their governments, you see. Can't sue, Canadian businesses can't sue the U.S. government and vice versa, U.S. business, Canadian government, and the same with Mexico. Uh, but the dispute mechanism uh, pretty much uh, remains the same, and Trudeau is going to make a big deal about that. See, I, I won on that one. Well, that is that is one of the the major uh, points that's being raised by uh, by progressives on both sides of the border that the Chapter 11 provision is uh, is has been eliminated from this new deal, and uh, of course that that you know, we've had 58 of these sorts of uh, trade disputes between Canada and the United States. The lion's share. Uh, affecting uh, the Canadian uh, policy. Um, well, it, it's it's not been eliminated. It's just not changed, you see. It's there. Uh, it's in a side agreement. they got to tidy it up a little bit. Uh, but uh, all that's changed is you can't sue the governments, you see. But it's there. It's not that it's been eliminated at all. Uh, and, and that's, a, you know, a minor deal, a, a minor change uh, in, in the whole dispute mechanism and a win for Canada. Right. It, that demand was always a stalking horse uh, by U.S. negotiators. You know, they, they never really uh, uh, were going to go to the mat on that, that particular uh, element of, of the deal. Um, but with uh, I know that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the points that are raised as positives, the idea that uh, there's an insistence for uh, uh, other auto parts, uh, that they be, uh, uh, that there's more sourcing for to for North America, like it's up to 75 percent um, made in North America, um, and also the idea that it's uh, they're insisting that uh, that uh, in in certain circumstances the benefits uh, will require or mandate that uh, you raise the wage up to 16 dollars an hour uh, for a percentage uh, of the uh, of, of some of the parts being traded. So I'm wondering if you could comment on these supposed gains. When they say you raise the content, North American content, from 62.5 to 75 percent, really that, that's aimed at China uh, because uh, Mexico was beginning to uh, um, what contract parts from Asia, from China, instead of making them in Mexico. Uh, so that restriction, which is really kind of minimal, 62 to 75 is really aimed at China. That's a provision aimed at, at China. Uh, and, um, you know, 60, 62 to 75 is not much. Uh, raising the Mexican wages to $16 an hour th on 30% of auto workers, uh, by when? Right? <laughs> How long is it going to take for them to raise it to $16? They're not going to do it overnight. Well, they don't say. Uh, and only 30% of the auto parts, well, that's really tokenism, right? That's to get the labor vote, uh, to get the support of AFL-CIO in the United States, you see. Um, the provision that's not talked about enough, I think, it also targeting China, is uh, the U.S. insistence and the agreement of Canada and Mexico that they will not negotiate a free trade deal with Mexico, 
And uh, if they do, the U.S. can pull out immediately out of the USMCA deal, right? Uh, well, that's kind of an infringement on the sovereignty of Canada, right? And Mexico, uh, you know, you should be able to negotiate trade deals whoever you want. But in the case of, uh, of the uh, new NAFTA 2.0, if Canada does that, well, then they're going to scrap the whole thing again, right? Uh, U.S. is determining um, uh, Canadian sovereignty in this, this particular case. Uh, yeah, so that 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 should be talked about more because as soon as this thing is wrapped up after the November elections here in the U.S., uh, the, the you know the big attack is on with China, and it's already well on its way with 250 billion dollars in tariffs on China, and and that fight's just beginning. I've been writing Rasmus, about that too. Yeah, more on the sovereignty question. I know that uh, one of the things that people are mentioning, at least on this side of the border, is the. Uh, the, the impact on on dairy and being able to control, uh, you know, allowing the market to be flooded with uh, with dairy products from the U.S. Where in Canada we do have certain restrictions on bovine growth hormone, uh, whereas they don't have those things in the United States. So I mean that that's one major impact coming out of this. And so and also with regard to the sov again sovereignty, uh, what we've heard is that uh, Canada is going to be. Uh, or I guess any of the NAFTA partners, I mean, according to one of the provisions, uh, the NME clause, I think it's a chapter, uh, clause 32.10, it reads, quote, entry by any party into a free trade agreement with a non-market country shall allow the other parties to terminate this agreement on six-month notice and replace this agreement with an um, agreement between them. So um, basically that, as I understand it, the, the, the concern is that if Canada uh, wanted to have a free trade agreement with China, as they, they pure, apparently they do. Uh, it uh, this agreement is using as an obstacle to that. So yeah, again, this is all perhaps further undermining the sovereignty of of the NAFTA partners, particularly Canada and Mexico. Well, uh, just com uh, commenting on your reference to the dairy provisions here, uh, 3.5 percent more access of U.S. to Canadian uh, uh, dairy market, but uh, if you look at it, it we're, we're not talking about milk here, right? We're not talking about selling uh, a milk into Canada. What we're talking about is powdered milk and formula milk, right? And that refers to what you were talking about, uh, Canadian limitations on, um, you know, the purity of that kind of stuff uh, in, in the U.S. not really having controls over that, letting these companies that produce powdered and, and uh, formula milk uh, to fill it full of uh, who knows what's in that stuff, right? Uh, and uh, that's really what's going, that, that's really what the 3.5% is to allow American companies to sell more powdered and uh, formula into Canada, uh, concentrate and so forth, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, that that's really helping certain companies, chemical companies in the U.S., uh, not really uh, uh, taking over uh, sales of, uh, you know, av typical average milk. On the uh, the NME clause, uh, this idea that uh, I mean, 
what we heard from uh, uh, there was an American uh, lawmaker who indicated that they uh, instigated that the American side instigated this clause uh, in response to concerns they had about Trudeau wanting to sign a trade agreement with China. Uh, what does this agreement mean in the context of uh, the uh, the trade war with China that you referenced? What what is it going to do for uh, uh, you know not just Canada and Mexico but uh, potentially other countries, perhaps those in the uh, the new uh, TPP agreement or, or Europe? Is, is there an impact there? Uh, well, we have yet to see what impact that'll have on TPP. When TPP was uh, was uh, uh, scuttled in U.S. by Congress. Uh, not by Trump, by the way. Uh, what happened was Japan took over the lead for the U.S. And Japan is the uh, surrogate lead negotiator for the U.S. And at some t at some point, uh, the U.S. probably, in my view, will rejoin it, rejoin the TPP. But uh, uh, only after uh, you know the China situation is trade situation is is resolved. Uh, but it, it certainly will have some impact on uh, the TPP existing partners and how they look at uh, uh, upcoming negotiations. You know, at some point, uh, the U.S. will uh, renegotiate Trump will, uh, with, with Japan, uh, but Japan will fall in line with whatever the template is here, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the temple with South Korea and now NAFTA. Uh, the same with, with Europe. Uh, Trump started going after Europe, uh, but then he totally suspended all of that uh, with Europe with a deal to focus on, on NAFTA. Um, as far as China is concerned, uh, it's a different uh, animal uh, as far as trade is concerned. Uh, look, there are three U.S. trading, faction, trading team factions uh, in, in the U.S. with regard to trade to China. I've said this and wrote about this on my blog, jackrasmus.com, and uh, they are as follows. Uh, one, you have the bankers and U.S. multinational corporations uh, who want a bigger share of ownership of their operations in China. Up to now, it was 49%. They couldn't own more. Uh, China has conceded already, has given uh, the okay for 51%, and has indicated, well, you can even own 100% maybe. Uh, so uh, the big bankers love that because they'll finance the deals for the expansion, and uh, the big banks are given are being given uh, uh, an opening to expand in China. Uh, that's why Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary of the United States and ex Goldman Sachs investment bank CEO, uh, who's led the U.S. negotiating team with with China, uh, was quite happy with the deal last May. He thought he had a deal. And he came back to the United States, and uh, Trump scuttled it. The other uh, second element is uh, China has indicated that it will buy $100 billion more a year in U.S. agricultural products. That was the second faction on the U.S. team. So the Chinese have uh, made big concessions to, uh, concessions to two of the three factions. What's the third faction? It's the U.S. Pentagon and industrial uh, um, military industrial complex and their friends in Congress. They're the ones that are holding back the deal with China and are pushing a hard line that now has Trump's ear, because Trump loves the military, you know, draft dodger Trump <laughs> loves whatever, you know, he, it's kind of like uh, 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 workers who uh, were union stewards or something to become supervisors. They, they tend to be harder on, on their own people 
that they came from then uh, uh, manages, uh, you know, who didn't come from the ranks. And uh, there's a little bit of that psychological a phenomenon here with Trump. You know, Trump, the draft dodger, uh, now loves the military, right? Uh, but uh, that group, that third faction, uh, the fight with China is really over next generation technologies. I'm talking about 5G, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence. These are the, the industries of the future. They are also the military technology of the future. And the U.S. is worried that China may just leapfrog the U.S. militarily in certain areas, and they want to stop it. Uh, they've uh, put uh, you know, the kibosh on China buying tech companies or buying tech companies in the U.S. They've even come up with this, this ridiculous thing that somehow China got its chips into the servers of this company, Micron, Super Micron, and they're spying on all the U.S. companies and the U.S. government in the U.S., although there's absolutely no evidence to that effect. Reminds me of the yellow cake <laughs> scam back before Iraq, right? Um, but it's technology. It's about technology. And they want to stop China's technology development, what it calls its 2025 program, where they want to be at par with the U.S. and military technology in those three areas by 2025. Well, that's what's what's behind uh, putting the kibosh on a deal with China, which they almost had in May. You see, uh, Mnuchin comes back, uh, you know, and says, "Hey, we got a good deal. We get 51 or 100 percent ownership, and you're going to buy 100 billion more." Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, it gets turned around uh, in Congress, congressional friends of the Pentagon, and uh, gets stopped. Uh, and we're going to see uh, after the November elections whether that's going to really escalate into something even more serious, not only on the trade front, but maybe a new Cold War with China. Remains to be seen. Uh, but that's going to be the, the topic of 2019. And of course, as far as trade negotiations with Europe are concerned, uh, the, the U.S. can't do anything until uh, we see what happens with Brexit in next March. Uh, so everything there is on hold uh, for, for that. Uh, but that will look a lot like NAFTA, I believe, uh, some token tweaking. But the China trade war is real. That's why you see this provision, Chapter 3210, in the NAFTA 2.0 agreement, which says uh, you go and negotiate a deal with China, it's all over as far as uh, our deal is concerned. We're, we're going to be back to uh, uh, square one. By the way, the NAFTA deal does not take effect until 2020, right? and it has to be approved by the legislatures. And who knows what's going to happen? Uh, I've been predicting we're going to have a, a significant recession in the U.S. in late, late 2019, uh, and uh, you know that could uh, upend the whole thing. Or politically... Uh, you know, uh, it's not likely, but the, the Democrats may uh, uh, push this uh, uh, impeachment thing, although I, I don't believe that's 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 real on their part. And that kind uh, of brings us to the next question yeah. I wanted to uh, to bring up, which is the, the impact on the uh, the upcoming uh, congressional like the midterm elections. Uh, I think there's a, a sense out there that uh, with the, the Kavanaugh hearings and uh, a lot of the other uh, you know, negative press that Mr. Trump has been getting lately that this could lead to some sort of a surge for the Democrats, but uh, you have a very different take on that. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping that we could uh, maybe, you know, maybe tease uh, your thoughts out, uh, maybe a prediction as uh, we get closer to that date. 
Well, you know, I'm very skeptical of these polls and, and all this, uh, this uh, hoopla about a blue wave, right? I mean, these are the same polls that in 2016 said Trump would only get 15% of the vote and the Democrats would sweep everything. These are the same pollsters. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it serves the Democratic Party uh, to uh, really spin it uh, that there's a blue wave. Now, uh, certainly the Democrats will win some houses, uh, you know, some seats in, in the U.S. House, uh, but the, they can't just win some seats. They have to really sweep it uh, to have any change. Uh, and even if they sweep it, um, you know, my view is that uh, they'll walk or talk the talk here about impeachment, but they won't walk it. You know, they'll they'll use the impeachment uh, in committee meetings. They won't bring it to the floor of the House and they'll uh, use that as a as a, um, a battering battering ram for the 2020 elections. I don't think the Democrats are serious about impeachment, uh, but we'll see uh, in either way. Whatever comes comes in the November elections, midterm elections, I think I have a sense that it's going to be a kind of a, a consciousness bombshell that was similar to 2016 when Trump won. Maybe not as strong, but significant, because if the Democrats don't win, uh, what happens to this blue wave? Hmm? And you're going to see a lot of liberals and Democrats and progressives going to get very discouraged with the Democrats, and rightfully so. Uh, and uh, they won't turn out in 2020. Uh, if the Democrats don't have a blue wave, uh, then it's really going to start sinking in that these, the, you know, the Democratic Party is inept uh, and tactically uh, bankrupt. You can see, uh, you know, the moves they made this year tactically bankrupt from the Dreamers thing uh, back February, where they said a line in the sand, we're not going to allow a passing of the of the budget here unless you have the dreamers bill and then they totally backed off of that uh, and then the Kavanaugh hearings you know a lot of huffing and puffing and the latest I just heard was that the Democrats have given up on about 20 federal judge uh, appointees judgeship appointees here in, in, in the last couple of days in order for them to uh, get out of Washington and campaign you know they're just throwing in the towel everywhere and I think if they don't really sweep November, uh, people are going to have a consciousness awakening here that, uh, you know, these, these folks are, are uh, unable to deliver. And, of course, that's not true for just now. That's been happening for years. The Democrats have become just a, a, a coastal party. Uh, their whole apparatus has collapsed, except for on the coasts. Uh, and except in, in certain uh, little islands of big cities. Uh, throughout most of the country. Uh, and, and that's a big change. People don't realize how much that's a big change. Uh, they spend more time fighting Bernie Sanders and his supporters uh, than they really do uh, uh, Trump. There's a lot of talk. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, what, have, what have they really been able to deliver? Uh, not very much. The Democratic Party was the party that established under Bill Clinton that saying, it's the economy, stupid. And it doesn't seem really like that's been their focus, whereas the Republicans, uh, at least they're addressing it rhetorically, but uh, whether or not that actually pays off, it's, it's kind of hard to see that visible. So I, I think you have those sorts of uh, forces competing for uh, potential... Yes, and if you look at uh, you know, the Democratic Party, uh, this isn't the Democratic Party of my, my, my 
father and grandfather. You know, I mean, this is the party that, that changed dramatically under Bill Clinton. The Democratic Leadership Conference took over. And uh, this is a party in which uh, over 100 members of its uh, national committee are corporate lobbyists and CEOs. And that's why they don't really seriously push economic issues anymore. Uh, I mean, they're not even for Medicare for all. They Now they say they are, but they, you know, we're against it. Uh, Medicare for all, which they originated in the 60s. Uh, and they're all for identity politics, you see? Identity politics, I think, is a big conspiracy to avoid uh, talking about the real economic issues, you know, of wages, of pensions and benefits and, and jobs and all these other real issues that the Republicans are leveraging. They're not going to do anything about it, but they're leveraging that discontent. Trump was very good at that. Uh, and the Democrats are, you know, pushing identity politics. Uh, unless you, you, you talk about Bernie Sanders, who comes in and tries to talk about traditional Democrat issues. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they, they squashed him. And uh, their recent Democrat National Committee uh, convention, uh, they retained the superdelegates. You know, uh, only on the first vote of a candidate with the superdelegates not vote. Uh, and but nonetheless, the the uh, chair of the Democratic Party can veto any candidate who runs on a Democratic ticket. They're going to make sure that there's no more real Bernie Sanders, that there's no more real resurrection of the Democratic Party. Uh, my radio show, Alternative Visions, uh, on a progressive radio network, we're going to have a show next week uh, where we're having Nick Branagh on. Uh, Nick was uh, very active as a liaison between uh, the, uh, the, the Sanders organization and the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, he saw inside, he used to work for the Democratic Party, and he saw inside what was really going on. And, uh, you know, it, it was his observation, how do you change a party uh, where over 100 members of its DNC, National Committee, are lobbyists? You can't. Oh, so if you can't uh, have Rishi and you talk about identity politics, you see. And identity politics are the bane of progressive politics in America, I believe. It's a big distraction, uh, and it'll, it opens up, uh, uh, you know, the whole working class to uh, uh, be absorbed by the Republicans, which they're doing a very good job on right now. We just heard an interview with blogger and commentator Dr. Jack Rasmus, author of the forthcoming book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Policy from Reagan to Trump, by Clarity Press. He hosts the weekly radio show Alternative Visions on the Progressive Radio Network and blogs at jackrasmus.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Technical assistance provided this week by Paul Graham. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>